and that jarring cacophony tells you it's a new month. It's November the 1st. We're on the countdown to Doctor Who's 60th anniversary. And here on the Power of Three podcast, we're going to be doing something different every day in the run-up to the anniversary. We're going to be featuring a different story from a different doctor, particularly for the first 14 days of the month. And then we'll be bringing you some more extra special content. I'm Kenny Smith. And I'm joined today by my friend, colleague, co-conspirator and general cheeky chappy and all-round great guy <laughs> Who's very, very sleepy this morning Hello everyone, David Steele here, welcome back, thank you for joining us Well Dave, here we go, we've got a busy few days ahead of us We've got of course. we've got a whole load of books to talk about Cracks knuckles Yes indeed, let's get those pages turning yes. yep, We're going to be featuring an original Doctor Who novel from each of the first 13 Doctors well, 14 will include the War Doctor as well. Yeah. And then further down the line, we'll be having a chat about Liberation of the Daleks, the David Tennant comic strip. And we can discuss that, because that'll be great fun. Really enjoying it in yes. DWM. Yes, the, um, I, I've been praising it all over the place. Alan Barnes is doing astonishing work with the Doctor Who comic strip just now. He's, he just he just gets it. He knows how to do it. Simple as that. And combined with Lee Sullivan, it's a literal dream team. Listeners, if you're not reading the Doctor Who magazine comic strip at the moment, you really should be. It's phenomenal. Alan has told me, I think I've said this already, there's going to be a collected edition. So I'll definitely be picking that up as well as I've enjoyed all the separate chapters. It's just glorious. Yep. Fingers crossed for an audio adaptation further down the line with DT. <laughs> Can you imagine? I'd buy it. I would. Definitely. But we're not talking about no, that no, yet. Not, not we're yet. we're yeah. getting way ahead of ourselves. Absolutely. Let's rewind by 15 regenerations. Or is it 14 regenerations because it's the 15? No, anyway, I, how many incarnations? This is I don't it's know. Confusing. It's impossible now. It's like when you see, you know, when the official merchandise starts to look like the cover of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, you sort of think, hang on, guys, <laughs> can we get a doctor to stay for longer than three years for, just for a while? Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to be talking about a doctor who did three years and a little bit more. Well, if you're talking calendar years, he finished about three weeks short of three years. Yeah, he's well, broadcast over four years, yes. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about William Hartnell, the first Doctor. Although it's a first Doctor adventure, not specifically William Hartnell we're talking about today. Mm. We have got an exclusive chat with one of the Doctor writers who you don't hear too much from these days. It is the wonderful Christopher Bullis, who wrote The Sorcerer's Apprentice, one of the first of the Virgin Missing Adventures, way back in, what, 1990? 1995. Wow. Which is terrifying. Yeah, previously um, to this he'd written The Excellent State of Change, which featured the Sixth Doctor and Perry, and combating the Rani. I remember that generating a lot of excitement because of, um, should we say, the involvement of earlier Doctors. Yes. I shall say no more at that point in case we end up talking to Chris about that book. Yep. But Chris is somebody who sort of wrote his Doctor Who books and then after the BBC books stopped publishing, just seemed to vanish. But thankfully, the wonderful David J. Howe managed to put me in contact with Chris and we had a chat with him last year about his EDA Vanderdecken's children over on Pieces of Eight. Yep. And fascinating chat and an absolutely wonderful gent. Real, Really, really good fun and uh, always entertaining in his emails to me as well and I thought it'd be quite interesting if we got a chat with Chris about The Sorcerer's Apprentice which is such a great book. I remember reading it at the time, thoroughly enjoying it and just it just it felt so authentic mm. to the to the era. Dave could you tell us a little bit about the book itself? 
I'll tell you quickly about the front cover first, Kenny, if I may. Of course. I always loved the Missing Adventures template with a sidebar of a, a painting of the Doctor and one of the featured companions and then a square image of you know, basically a scene from the story. And the scene from this one features the TARDIS being breathed upon, shall we say, by a fire-breathing dragon and the sidebar shows the Doctor's granddaughter Susan in a very plain white robe but the Doctor, the first Doctor, wearing a, a kind of bright crimson robe with yellow detailing with stars and anks and little squiggles and it's all very interesting and you makes you think is the doctor going to be the sorcerer's apprentice but the the blurb on the back reads the sorcerer's apprentice an original novel featuring the first doctor barbara ian and susan do we attempt a heart no voice at this time in a yes Sunday my morning? boy hmm this no such thing as magic <laughs> that's terrible <laughs> the doctor said but the land of elbian might just prove him to be wrong it is a place populated by creatures of fantasy where myth and legend rule. Elves and dwarves live in harmony with mankind, wizards wield arcane powers, and armoured knights battle monstrous dragons. Yet it seems that Albion has secrets to hide. The TARDIS crew find a relic from the 30th century hidden in the woods. Whose sinister manipulations are threatening the stability of a once peaceful land? And what part does the planet play in a conflict that may save an empire, yet doom a galaxy? To solve these puzzles and save his companions, the Doctor must learn to use the sorcery whose very existence he doubts. And we're told further, this adventure took place between the television stories Marco Polo and the Keys of Marinus. Christopher Bullis is the author of two previous Doctor Who novels, the new adventure Shadowmind and the missing adventure State of Change. And who did the cover? By Paul Campbell. There we go. Very good Paul, actually, must be said. It is. It is very good. Yeah. I always um, took, I took a real shine to The Sorcerer's Apprentice when it came out. I think it was engaging the fact we've got I mean of course this is back in you know pre-Harry Potter days pre-Game of Thrones well I think the Game mm. of Thrones books were starting to come out around this time so you've got that sort of myths and legend and everything like that coming together so at the time it was new for me because I'm not a big fantasy reader in yeah fact, I'm the same it's not really I'm not at all a fantasy reader no um, not really my, my normal sort of style but if, it's the sort of thing you can imagine them attempting it on TV quite easily um, you know a few sets maybe even a puppet dragon sort of thing yeah. Um, it would work very well. There were was, was so many excellent First Doctor books in this range. It's, 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 yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of another, and just such an imaginative, really enjoyable, satisfying bunch of First Doctor books that Virgin put out. You know, this one, The Plotters, Man in the Velvet Mask, Empire of Glass, there was so many. Um, and Christopher Bullis is just such a solid, dependable writer. He knows what works, and, he, and he's very good at getting it over. Yeah, absolutely captures the voices because he's been a fan of the, the show for since the early days as we're about to hear. Uh-huh. So obviously, when you're in your formative years, those voices absolutely stick in your head. I mean, I know that I could write dialogue for the Doctor and Ace till the cows come home, and I'm not really, a, and I'm not that sort of writer, but I know that I could do it because their voices are so clear and well defined. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, we're recording this just as we've been enjoying the, the bonus features of the season twenty Blu-ray, and I, the Fifth Doctor and Tegan's voice are basically like a screensaver in my mind at the moment, and you, and. Peter and Janet did just a good, such a good job that it'd be quite easy just to recreate that dynamic. So Christopher does a good job in this with the original, the original TARDIS team. Very much so. And we'll just have a quick summing up before we hear from Chris himself with what the book I Who had to say about it. And we'll be checking in with I Who for their opinions throughout this next few days, where they have reviews, of course. And they say, at the end of the day, a nice and easy read, going down smooth as a shake, layered with details about this fantasy-rich world. Having a magical adventure for once is kind of nice, even if the explanation is scientific, and it's a much better quest story than the abysmal The Keys of Marinus. 
<laughs> For all these points, the book's threat, despite Dal and Gramling's body switch, is too straightforward and finishes a bit pat. However, the TARDIS crew comes off exceptionally resourceful. Barbara even teaches the Queen about women's lib. This would have been a delight to see on screen with a decent budget. So I thought the ending was actually quite nice. I quite liked it. Yeah. I thought it came together well. Yeah, it's a bit harsh. I mean, it's, it, it felt authentic. You know, it's, it, you can imagine it, you have to imagine it being played out by, by the actors involved, and it probably, you know, for 1964, you know, when Doctor Who hasn't done this sort of stuff before, it would have been fine. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway. Enough about us, Dave. Why don't we hear from the man who brought this story to life way back 28 years ago? I know. Over to you, Chris. My name is Christopher Bullis, and I am the author of The Missing Adventure, The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Fantastic. Welcome to The Power of Three. It's been a joy to have you on, and uh, we've obviously we've spoken before on Pieces of Eight. So, welcome to the other podcast, What I Do. What You Do, yes. <laughs> and long may you keep doing what you do. Oh, thank you, Chris. So, we're going to talk about The Sorcerer's Apprentice. So, what do you recall about how the book came about in the first place? Well, by the mid-1990s, I'd already done two Doctor Who books, Shadow Mind and State of Change. And I was getting into the swing of writing for Virgin Publishing, and I presented them with several ideas for new stories. And one of these involved the TARDIS slipping into an alternate dimension where magic worked in place of science, and the Doctor had to figure out its rules to escape. Um, the Celestial Toymaker story from Season 3 and the Mind Robber story from Season 6 had played about with the borderline between fantasy and reality to some extent, uh, so that wasn't unprecedented and I thought that would be quite acceptable. But for some reason the, Earth, the editors at Virgin uh, didn't like that idea as it was, so I had to come up with another explanation. And fortunately, the idea of a coordinated web of microscopic nanobots covering a planet and responding to the right method of thought control came to me. Uh, this was really an application of R.C. Clarke's third law, which states any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. At the same time, the nanobots provided a good reason for the TARDIS crew to remain in a potentially dangerous situation because instead of dematerialising out of it at the first opportunity, this time they had no choice. The TARDIS wouldn't let them get back inside once they had been contaminated with, from the point of view of its defence systems, dangerous alien tech. They had to stay and sort out the mystery. Um, this hidden menace also set the scene for an unexpected revelation at the end of the story and a more deeply layered structure, so it was probably a better concept than my original idea. Um, as for selecting the period and the future historical background in which to place my stories at the time, I've been using Doctor Who the Terrestrial Index. Uh, it helped me keep Apprentice generally consistent with the chronology of the televised stories, uh, a very useful reference book. Uh, by the way, for those who don't recognise the origin of the story's title, it originally came from a German ballad poem written by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe in the late 18th century. It's somewhat comic, but it may also be read as a warning about the misunderstanding and misuse of power, which is a strong theme in my story. It became a popular concert piece and several other authors have used the title in their own work since then. Probably its most famous adaption was in the 1940 Disney animation Fantasia, where Mickey Mouse plays the hapless apprentice. 
Oh yes, I know it well. It's yes. such, <laughs> such a great film. It was one of my dad's favourites. So yeah, I, loved I dimly remember seeing it when I was quite young. But um, yes, it's 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 very very good stuff. Quite excellent animation. Yeah, it certainly is, and such a memorable piece of music as well. So oh and yes, got, oh yes. Yeah. So somebody who's been a fan of the show since the 1960s, this must have been a bit of a dream for you getting to do that original team that got you hooked. It was certainly that. Yes. Very satisfying to slot in a missing adventure story into what turned out to be the earliest possible space between the original broadcast episodes. Um, I still got a copy of the Doc 2 continuity list of possible story gaps that Virgin put together. And there's mine between Marco Polo and the Keys of Marinus. So in a way, it's the very first one ever which is nice. And of course, it was a pleasure to write for the original TARDIS crew who started all. And um, I fondly remember them from the very beginning, back in those distant black and white 405 line cathode ray tube days. I think my version of The Sorcerer's Apprentice could genuinely have worked as a televised Doctor Who serial in the 1960s, always assuming, of course, that the BBC could have found the money in a single story for space fleets, sea monsters, a horde of dragons and space marines attacking a castle, together with a supporting cast of witches, dwarves, fire sprites, leprechauns, mermaids, flying apes and all the rest. <laughs> Yeah, and instead we get bored with, uh, with with flippers, which they then fall over. So, mm, it's uh... yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. I, I don't think they'd have actually come to stomp up the money. No, 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 maybe anyway. not. <laughs> it's still it's a nice thought, and it's it is as you say, yeah. such a amazing characters and such a vivid setting. So, what were your inspirations along the way for this one? Yeah, for the, I think really from the opening scenes on Avalon, where I was trying to build up tension, I drew a little from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's 1912 classic, The Lost World. Um, I read this when I was quite young, and it's remained one of my favourite adventure stories. A party of explorers on a lost prehistoric South American plateau being stalked through the woods by dinosaurs has some similarity with the time travellers being stalked through the woods of Avalon by a dragon in my story. Uh, in passing, I might point out that although Conan Doyle was famous for creating Sherlock Holmes, he was personally much fonder of the character of Professor George Edward Challenger from The Lost World. Now, Challenger was a brilliant, overbearing and irascible, but also he displayed flashes of sensitivity and compassion. Uh, it's interesting to note, as I'm sure others have done, the similarities between his character and that of the first Doctor. As for the inspiration behind the magical elements of the story, and The Sorcerer's Apprentice was written before Harry Potter first appeared, remember? And apart from the influence of magical tales in general, there was probably some input from Terry Pratchett's wonderful Discworld series. There was quite a bit of his indomitable old witch Granny Weatherwax in my character of Annie Glassfeather. There's an advantage in using well-known tropes of fantasy, such as dark and mysterious woods and dragons, towers on lonely heaths and moated medieval castles, in that they do not need much additional explanation. They're already comfortably familiar to most readers, as long as you then do something fresh with them, such as have them invaded by space marines, and then all's well. And come to think of it, that clash of technologies and having the Empire Marines use modern explosives to breach the wall of Fluxford Castle might have been inspired by the siege of Helm Steep from Lord of the Rings to Two Towers, although I wrote it before the epic film version came out. 
And of course, there is the idea of the chief protagonist embarking on some kind of quest involving a perilous journey, although the one in my story was not as lengthy and complex as the one in Tolkien's tale. Virgin Books, for some reason, were not ready to publish a half billion word long missing adventure at the time. <laughs> And if all this seems like a lot of borrowing and repurposing of elements from past works of fiction, then in this case, I can claim it was perfectly logical. As it was revealed at the end of the story, it was on such similar fictional stories, sources that um, Avalonian society was based. What wasn't borrowed from earthly culture in the context of the story's prehistory was the system that shaped everything on Avalon before the coming of the settlers. In the form described, it was an original creation of my own, but it might have been inspired a little by the mind-controlled subterranean city-sized machine from the 1956 film Forbidden Planet. In that story, the device inadvertently destroyed the Krell, its super-intelligent benevolent creators, virtually overnight by releasing, in a famous phrase from the film, monsters from the id. In my story, I suggested that a worldwide all-powerful machine that could be activated by thought alone would not necessarily destroy a civilization through a deliberate act of malice. However, it could reduce the population to degenerate lotus eaters, people blissed out on pleasure and luxury while forsaking practical concerns. In this case, the native Cephalis took the comforts the system provided for granted and forgot how and why they made it in the first place. Then they made a tragic mistake and brought about their own downfall, which oh. led into the beginning of my story. Yeah, it's lovely. I'm saying I do love the name Annie Glassfeather. It's one that always stuck with me. <laughs> it's just it's got such a it's got such a lovely lyrical quality to it. Well, thank you. It just sort of came to me, and I stuck with it. <laughs> yeah. Now you mentioned earlier the Celestial Toymaker, and uh, the Mind Robber as would have been ways to resolve it. So it must have been quite fun for you then to come up with your own rationalisation for when magic seemed real, and then fool us all. Yeah, well, as I said, that was a bit fortuitous, but in the end, probably made for a better story. Uncovering the truth layer by layer then became part of the structure of the story, and the protagonists and the reader followed the clues as they were revealed. Um, it did take a bit of careful plotting, not to give too much away too soon. Hopefully, when the truth was finally revealed, the readers will think, of course, now that makes sense. In retrospect, I realised I never did explain any detail how the invisible nanobot system on Avalon worked. I did relate how the Empire fleet in orbit had detected planet-wide energy flows and showed at the end when the system was finally destroyed that the nanobots saturated everything and everyone on the planet. The implication was that with enough power and coordination they could reshape both living and inanimate matter and create seemingly magical effects. Hopefully the readers could work the rest out for themselves. Not that all readers necessarily want a rational explanation, of course. That's the key difference between science fiction, where readers generally like hard, logical explanations reasonably consistent with, albeit sometimes extrapolated, science, and readers of fantasy. I think many of them, and indeed much of the population at large, simply wish that magic was real. After all, it's so much more fun than our reality. I mean, science is often seen as cold and uncaring, while people respond much more readily to the charm of myths and legends and assorted superstitions. And as I mentioned earlier, it, that in turn helps make the story more accessible. Magical tales are popular, as the success of the Harry Potter story shows. Will we all not want simply to wave a magic wand to tidy a house or ride on a broomstick? Very tempting. 
Naturally, though, the Doctor was never fooled into believing the apparently obvious and easy explanation. He's a scientist through and through. He knew it was impossible from the start, as he kept saying, there is no such thing as magic. And when he dressed as a magician at the end of the story for the final showdown, it wasn't giving it the power of magic. Instead, he was using applied observation and deductive reasoning to control and focus a force that he was sure he now understood. It's such a great image that you can just so see. And obviously it's beautifully realised in the cover, but it's just one you can particularly see him walking in, just his arms up and yeah, and just enjoying the moment, dressing for the occasion, as uh, yeah, he did, somebody he, once it said. Did look- it did look good on the cover illustration and it was right the effect was very very important so everybody believed belief was everything in that yeah yeah so how enjoyable is it for you as a writer to find rational explanations for magical realms and things like dragons Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, of course, if there's a rational explanation of something, then it's no longer magical. If you take magical to mean paranormal, miraculous or mysterious, and so beyond human understanding. Um, if a thing is understood and operates according to logical laws, then it comes into the realm of science. Uh, in the world of fiction writing, the rationalizations don't have to work in reality, of course, in the way that a rocket must actually fly to justify the effort that's gone into construction. But they must at least see incredible. Um, this is an extension of the general challenge that faces all pure SF writers, such as describing an alien world or making a faster light drive seem possible, uh, at least for the duration of the story. Um, it's satisfying and enjoyable if it works out at the end, but it still takes a lot of thought planning to get right. Um, and as to the specific content of my story, I think the more fantastical magical elements such as dragons were grounded by the hard tech employed by the Empire Space Forces. These provided both a contrast and a reassurance to the reader expecting an SF story that reason and rationality had not simply been jettisoned of a dramatic effect. In return, perhaps the magical elements helped soften the technology and make the story more appealing to a wider readership. The book is something of a playoff between these two opposing elements. Um, the magical power of my story was not supernatural and was in fact accessible to anyone Avalon with the proper preparation. The locals thought magical use was an innate gift or talent that only somebody, some people possessed, uh, possibly reflecting a para-medieval stratified society, and so the uninitiated did not tamper with it. The time travellers were not constrained by such inhibitions and they were ready to experiment. I had Susan imprisoned in Dahl's Tower with Princess Melissa, create a test spell to rid their cell beds of bugs using an improvised magic potion and a rhyme. And going back to Tolkien again, he had many rhymes and songs in the rings which were appropriate to the background culture of his story. Now I had a good reason to put a small one of my own in mine and it went like this. Compounds combine upon this plate to make a smoke that will fumigate. Cleanse the filling of this poor bed, so in comfort I may rest my head. Rid us of bugs and mites that bite, so we sleep easy for once all night. And it worked. The bugs were zapped, suggesting to Susan that there was reason behind it all, and that anybody could utilise magic with the right mindset. It was a way to tap into the power that dominated Avalon, and she was later able to apply that knowledge to escape from captivity. The Doctor would also utilise this understanding even more dramatically in a spectacular magical showdown. It certainly did. I mean, I really thought you captured 
the Doctor, Susan, Barbara and Ian very much could tell your love for those characters and the fact they played a big part in your formative years. Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, I did try and yes, they were always in my mind from those old black and white TV days, inevitably. Yeah, yeah, I did my best with them, yeah. Yeah, would you have watched old videos at the time just to refresh those voices or would have they been there long enough to be able to know exactly how to get them? Ah, I don't think at that time I had the old video, not when I wrote this. I Later, since then, yes, I picked up a very nice set of early ones, but not not then. So I was just uh, carrying it in my mind from the original stories, I think. Um, oh. and there weren't repeats or anything else. So, yeah, that was it then, yes. That's quite interesting. I, I think I'm trying, now you see, now you've got me started on this. Now I'm trying to be very accurate. I like to be accurate. I, I don't think I ever saw the very first ones. I think the earliest, I may have old, an old VHS tape I may have seen of some of the later black and white stories before I wrote Sorcerer's Apprentice. But I don't think I'd seen The Unearthly Child and the Daleks and um, Inside the Spaceship, the opening stories. I got them much later on a DVD collection. So I was working from later stories and then reminding myself what they were like. Yeah, it, it seemed to work out, yes. It definitely did. So what do you recall about the actual process of writing the novel? Um, well, I'm pleased to say I don't recall it being too much like hard work, which is nice. Uh, quite a change from some things I've written, which have been frankly a struggle. Um, once I had the synopsis worked out, it flowed quite easily. I don't think I had uh, too many external distractions at the time either. And as I'm reading this, I'm looking across at my work table where there's a cat curled up on it who can be very noisy at times and I hope is placated. And I dare lock out of my room because she will make a terrible noise if there's a closed door in front of her. So she's sleeping peacefully and I hope she won't interrupt the rest of this little talk. Anyway. I was at that time, 30 years old ago, I was able to get on into the groove and stay there. Just me in a the little fancy world I created for hours on end, and all too infrequent joy. Um, turning a synopsis, which is essentially a sequence of notes and outlines of scenes, into a fully-fledged text, you know, balancing out descriptive passages with slices of dialogue, is always an uncertain process. However, in this case, the tension sets of mystery built up nicely through the opening chapters as I introduced the different characters and subplots which hopefully drew in the readers into the story. I do remember setting out from the start to give both Susan and Barbara significant things to do uh, even if one of them had been kidnapped and the other was temporarily hampered by an injury. Otherwise I could imagine them as actors reading the story as a script and thinking their characters were just there for decoration or to give prompts to the men who would then supply a load of exposition. Or even worse, simply screaming at monsters or having been rescued. Um, perhaps in the 1960s that would have been acceptable, but I was writing then, 30 years on, and I had to consider a more enlightened, hopefully more enlightened, uh, contemporary audience. Um, their parts have been laid out in the plot, of course, but now I had to tell it convincingly in the final version and make their actions seem natural and even inevitable. Um, Barbara was an intelligent, educated person who must by now, after having met cavemen in prehistoric Earth, survived a dangerous alien world, a crisis in a time machine and an adventure in ancient China, be adapting to weird adventures and starting to get more proactive. 
um, to use the resources she had to hand to find out more about the history of Avalon and her insight revealing what was missing in the city of Fluxford, which seemed otherwise, magical creations aside, to be a plausible facsimile of a medieval earthly city. Um, she also came up with the idea of using wires strung across the castle battlements to help ward off an aerial attack. And for someone of her age, from 1963, World War II and the Blitz would be recently lived history. Um, so the concept of deploying a variation on barrage balloons would, I thought, be reasonable. I hinted uh, at Susan's special nature at True Origin, which of course none of us knew about at the time. Back then, she and the Doctor were simply described as wanderers in space and time, coming perhaps from some future age of Earth. I don't think they were yet seen as true aliens, and there was no mention of them having two hearts and so on. This meant I could not break with the established story continuity of the televised episodes up to that point, so I could not mention Time Lords and everything that went with them. I could only suggest Susan's otherness, um, something that is generic knowledge was never explored enough in the televised series, in the way her high intelligence and analytical ability enabled her to work out how to use magic, in inverted commas, to escape from Dahl's tower. If she was Gallifrey and I reasoned she would not be somebody who sat about helplessly waiting to be rescued. I think, at least I hope, I did justice to their, both their characters in the end. I think you most definitely did. I think they're, 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 they're so obvious. You, read, you could read those words and you'd know exactly who they were, even if it didn't say who the voice was. So I think that's always testament to capturing a character. So. Yeah, well, you thank, thanks again. That was the objective, yes. Well, objective achieved, which is great. <laughs> now, we touched on briefly um, this there, the, the cover um, by Paul Campbell. It's lovely, isn't it? It's just that lovely it's, and bright and vivid. It's a good one, and it does give you everything that's important in the story, yes. And I don't think anybody could resist having a look at the cover and seeing the TARDIS being flamed over by a gigantic dragon. And again, of course, Doctor, weirdly, not in his usual dress. But why is he wearing all this this red robes uh, covered in mystical sigils and symbols and so on? So, yeah, uh, it's pretty good. I think it set the scene very nicely. It all worked out very nicely from that point of view. It yeah, did. great stuff. Yeah. It went re down really well with readers at the time. And, and uh, how do you look back on it now? You certainly really very fondly not only as a satisfying story, but one that came out almost exactly as planned with all the parts, as I said already, harmoniously fitting together. And I really wish more worked out like that. And of course, The Sorcerer's Apprentice was never made to a televised Doctor Who story, and Norsand is ever likely to be. But in a way, I've since seen at least a part of it brought to life, because years after I wrote it, I saw something on a cinema screen that seemed very close to one key climactic scene at the end of my story. Because at the end of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, there is the spectacular magical duel between Dumbledore and Voldemort in the grand atrium of the Ministry of Magic, which had eerie echoes of the Doctor's battle with Grambling in the Great Hall of Fluxford Castle. In Order of the Phoenix, it was one versus want, whereas in Sorcerer's Apprentice, it was the Doctor's ring versus Grambling's staff. But in both raw bolts of magical fire are splashed about, causing a great deal of incidental property damage as the outcome of the duel hangs in the balance. Yes, I thought that was what I was trying to convey in words back then. And if only that I, it only took 
a major film studio and the efforts of a host of actors, designers, set builders and digital effects artists to realise it. But then my story had a much smaller budget. <laughs> it did, but hey, it was, uh, it's still just as enjoyable in every way. Oh, fantastic. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. Yes, yes. I said I did my best. And if I've pleased everybody, that's that was the purpose. Yes. You most yeah, definitely great. did. Great. Fantastic, Chris. It's brilliant. It's really, really good. And please do come on again and please can we chat about some more of your work at some point in the future? I mean, I just kept on doing as many as I could. And some people said, oh, he's prolific, which is something. I, I mean, it's nice if people say, oh, yeah, and he's a brilliant writer. That didn't come up too often. But at least I did a number of them, which is something. Quality over... Uh, yes, do I mean? Quantity over quality, perhaps. Yes. Um, anyway, uh, I did my best. But Shadow Mine, I mean, I say right up now, I admit it. It was the first one, and it was not the best by any means. There are loads of faults in it. Um, I mean, if you really want to, I can discuss them. We'd have quite a lot to say over the faults in it, but um, uh, there's a lot, lot there's a I lot, could have done better. There's a lot right we'll with want it as well. There's a lot yeah. right well, I mean, well. yeah, that's... An, that, okay, we could have this discussion another time. That's it. We'll use up a full quota of discussion time. Yes. Just on trying to work out what was, what was tolerable and what wasn't. <laughs> um, yes, that's another challenge for another, another time. Yes, yes. absolutely. Anyway, anyway, I'd be very pleased to talk about it then. No, yeah. that's... That's great, Chris. Thank you. And thanks to Chris for that. Really enjoyable chat with him. I absolutely love chatting with him. Very friendly, very easygoing, and just very, very humble man. And I, I've thoroughly enjoyed chatting to him. So fingers crossed, as I said, we'll get him on to chat about some more of his books in the future. Absolutely. Chris, it'd be great to have you back because um, I always enjoyed your books. I hope you're listening. We don't mind me saying, but yeah, it'd be great to have you back and talk about perhaps Eye of the Giant or a Device of Death, something like that. That'd be great fun. Yep. Shadow Mind because I always quite enjoy the new adventures and, and that's a great thing about what we're going to be doing over the next few days we're going to be hearing from people about Doctor Who stories that the voices we've never actually heard about what went into all of these which mm. was part of the thinking behind us I thought it's a good way to try and celebrate different Doctors in a different way absolutely absolutely so there we go so that's us that's us episode one November the first done we're going to be back tomorrow with another book Guess which Doctor we're going to feature next? Well, I would hope it's going to be the second Doctor for the second day of November. <laughs> it most definitely Thank is. goodness for that. Yep. But find out which book it is tomorrow. So you know where we are. Same bat channel, same bat time, probably, depending when you want to tune in. Absolutely. Remember, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at Power3Pod, and you can visit our Facebook group, and please do leave comments. And if you have any ideas for future episodes or books that you'd particularly like to hear about, because we've actually got all of these recorded now, but hey, we can do more in the future if you enjoy them. Absolutely. Please let us know. So, until tomorrow, I've been Kenny Smith. I've been David Steele. Check out the Earth 2 podcast, as I always say. Check out Pieces of Eighth, as I always say. Kenny, what are we playing out with today? Well, Dave, I'm glad you asked me that, because... I know that you're a big fan of a particular formerly five-piece band from around the Manchester area. So I was thinking we could listen to Take That. Could it be magic? Oh, how appropriate for a Sorcerer's Apprentice. Awesome. TT's version produced by Doctor Who, legendary Doctor Who superfan Ian Levine, of course. Yep. So, oh, we should get him on one day. That would be a laugh, <laughs> wouldn't it? Anyway, yes, listeners, take care. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.